right, good morning, familia. How's everyone doing? How's everyone doing? Thank you. That's just being polite, you know? For those of you who don't know me, my name is Hannibal, and I want to welcome you all again. Uh, it's such a joy that we get to do this together. Today we continue with our series based on the Gospel of Matthew, a series that we have called The King and His Kingdom. And the topic we're going to talk about today, based on the text we read, is I think that a, a topic that uh, we are all familiar with, with, which is the concept of guilt. Um, see, guilt is one of those things that if you don't have the right perspective or the right understanding of it, and if you don't know how to deal with it right, it has the potential to destroy your life. And it has the potential to destroy the very people you love. If there's one thing in which the secular world and Christianity are in agreement, is that we all believe that guilt is extremely dangerous. If someone does not deal with guilt right, the consequences can be catastrophic. The difference between the secular mentality or understanding of guilt and the Christian mentality of guilt or understanding of guilt is that for Christians, the Bible makes it clear that guilt has secrets. That guilt functions like an inner voice that tells you that there's something wrong with your heart. It's a voice that doesn't go away. It doesn't matter if you try to get distracted. It's a voice that it doesn't go away even though you try to pretend like if nothing is happening. It's a voice that doesn't go away even if nobody else could hear it. It's a voice that doesn't go away even if you, um, if you think that you haven't done anything wrong. It's a voice that doesn't go away even if you try to convince yourself that you haven't done anything wrong. And it's a voice that doesn't go away even if you try to blame others for the things that you have done wrong. What the Bible calls us to do is not to ignore or pretend or do all any of that stuff with our guilt, but to confront it, deal with it, and then take it to Jesus. So let's talk about guilt for a second, and these are my three points for today. We're going to talk about the weight of guilt, the root of guilt, and the freedom from guilt. The weight, the root, and the freedom from guilt. Let's go with point number one, the weight of guilt guilt. Right at the end of this passage, we find one of the most popular and amazing, in my opinion, verses in the Bible. It's a passage that is so known, that is not known only by Christians, but even from people outside the church. In verse 28, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. How many of you guys have heard about that verse before? How many of you guys heard a sermon based on that verse before? All right, so we should close the service because you guys already heard this. Um, I want to invite you to read that verse f with a different set of lenses. See, I think that, that verse is so beautiful that you can apply it to anybody in any context under any kind of circumstances. As long as you consider yourself weary and burdened, that verse is for you. It's so popular that we can use it and apply it in so many different ways, and it's okay to do that. But my argument is, gonna, is going to be that even though you can use that verse and apply it to different people in different times under different circumstances, the primary way 
that we should apply that verse, or one of the ways in how we should apply this verse, is to put it in the context of understanding that this text is talking about guilt. That when Jesus is using this, he's talking and applying it, he's talking to and applying it with people that are struggling with guilt. See, the word weary there can be translated as exhausted. Someone that is losing heart, someone that is struggling spiritually. The word burden there is literally this person that feels that is carrying this load that you cannot get rid of. The combination of these two words is important then because it tells you that Jesus is talking to a group of people that are exhausted of carrying this load or by carrying this load. And it doesn't matter how much they've tried and do and anything they have pretended, they continue to struggle with this thing. Guilt is one of those things that never goes away if you don't know how to deal with it. Now, as a good congregant, you should ask the preacher, where do I get that from? Well, I think that it's understood, it's assumed, because that's the reason why Jesus calls people to repent. Right at the beginning of the text. Repent. And part of the reason why Jesus is calling people to repent is because repentance is the solution or the answer to guilt or for guilt. Jesus says that repentance, recognizing what we have done wrong and apologize against the ones we have done anything wrong, but vertically and horizontally, that is what is going to give you freedom from guilt. Repent. Repentance. Repentance. It's a call to be completely honest. It's a call to recognize that we have messed up, that we are sinful. It's to recognize that there is no excuse, that we have done something wrong, therefore we apologize to one another. And more than that, and not only that, we apologize toward God. Now, the problem with repentance, though, is that I'm almost sure that every single one of us hears the word repentance every week. At least if you come to church, you hear the word repentance all the time. Repentance is so and so popular that it's so easy to ignore. Repentance is so popular that I would argue that it's really easy to hear, very hard to apply. If you truly consider what repentant, repentance is. See, repentance is not just you saying, I'm sorry, because I see the consequences of my sin. Repentance has to be more than that. Repentance is much more than just you feeling sorry because you feel sorry. Repentance is much more than that. Repentance is hard because you are, have to recognize that you are sinful and that everything that you have done is sinful and that your sin is grotesque, not only toward the person you hurt, but toward God. Repentance is one of those things that is so easy to say, but so hard to apply. I think that this is the reason why Jesus is so emphatic in the first two verses of the text we read. In verse 20, it says, then, that, then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. In verse 21, it says, woe to you, Chorazin. Let me stop there for a second. Because as I was prepping for this, 
I checked three different sources on how to pronounce those names. Not one of them pronounced the names the same way. So if I pronounce it in a different way, it's not because I'm an immigrant, but because you guys haven't made up your mind on how to pronounce those things. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So Jesus is here, is calling these people to believe and to repent. Two towns that are on the northern side of of the Sea of Galilee. And he's saying, I already gave you enough information to believe. And I already gave you enough proof to repent. And then he says, he goes as far as to say, I've given you so much. That if the miracles that you have seen, I would have performed those miracles in a different place, they would have repented. That's a crazy statement, church. Because it tells you that God knew what he needed to say and do in those people, with those people, in order for them to repent, and he didn't. And now he's saying to these people, if I would have done those things there, they would have repented, therefore you have no excuse. You have all the information you need. You have all the proof you need. Therefore, believe and repent. But what the text shows us is that these people just don't want to. That they reject the truth of God, the truth of Jesus. To the point then that Jesus says, it is because that's where you are that you deserve judgment. Verse 22. It will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon and that day and the date of judgment than for you. And here's something that is extremely important that we keep in mind and understand. And this is why this text is a little bit complicated to preach and it's one of the things why we decided to walk through the Gospel of Matthew so I don't get to choose what I want to say. I know that there's a lot of people that struggle with guilt including the preacher. But I also know that a lot of us struggle with the concept of judgment. And actually, I think that the culture participates in that conversation. Because the argument goes something like this. Why would God, if he's a loving God, judge people and hold them accountable for something they did not know? What is interesting about that argument, though, is that the text shows you that God holds people accountable according to the knowledge they already have. That God only holds people accountable to what they already know. That he does not hold you accountable for stuff that you don't know. That's actually the whole argument of Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 where Paul says that we all know, everyone know who God is or how God is. And we all know what is right and wrong. Nature tells us about God and our conscience tells us about what is right and wrong. So Paul is saying something similar to what Jesus is saying here. You and I feel guilty because that's the product of us rejecting what we already know. Therefore, no one in the world can ever go to God and say, I did not know. Therefore, no one can ever say to God, I don't deserve judgment. 
Actually, I'm going to make an argument in a second saying that we all know that we deserve judgment. Actually, I'm going to make an argument in a minute that if you don't think that you deserve judgment, you might not be a Christian just yet. And what Jesus is saying is that guilt only goes away when we truly believe and truly repent. Judgment, according, judgment is what God brings for someone that has rejected the truth he has already revealed. Judgment is God saying that every sin must be paid for. I told you that this was going to be a difficult passage. Especially if you have considered what modern culture says. Especially if you have divorced the love of God from the judgment of God. Now before I make an argument why I think that even though modern culture thinks that this is one of the most offensive Christian doctrines, let me explain to you why I think that modern day culture struggles with this, and if this is your case, let me try to explain to you why is it that you may struggle with this. See, you and I are part of a culture that truly believes in what some people call expressive individualism. You know what that means? Actually, let me give you a percentage. 80% of Americans, not Christians, 80% of Americans in general believe that morality should be divorced from any, any religion and any tradition. 80% of, of Americans believe that morality depends on what I think is right and what I think is wrong. So, of course, if you grab that and you talk about the doctrine of judgment, the person that is part of an individualistic society would say, how come God gets to say what is right and wrong? Do you know what is the problem with that argument? That they don't even believe that. And if that's you, you don't even believe that. Let me make the argument of my argument. Because if you decide what is right and wrong, if I decide what, I, what is right and wrong, all morality is out the door automatically. See, I could go, this is an awful example, but I could go and smack you in the face. No reason whatsoever. And you say, Hannibal, how dare you? That is wrong. And I would say, that's wrong to you, but not to me. <laughs> Can you see the flaw in the argument? There's a flaw in the argument because if morality, traditional morality is out the door, then all morality is out the door. That's a flaw argument also because it's inconsistent. One of our struggles when we adopt this philosophy is that we don't transfer the same principles all across. Actually, I'm going to make an argument from a biblical passage and how I think that the culture interprets that passage. So in John chapter 8, we find this picture of Jesus having a conversation with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are bringing this woman that was caught in adultery. Remember that? And the Pharisees tell to Jesus, the law of Moses tells us that we're supposed to stone this lady. And then they ask Jesus, paraphrasing, what will you do, Jesus? 
Of course, they're trying to trap Jesus in the argument, right? Because they know that if Jesus says, stone the lady, they would say, well, I thought they were all about love. But if Jesus says, don't stone the lady, then they would say, oh, you're violating the law of God. And Jesus, that is magnificent, does something completely different. He goes to the people and say, if you are free of guilt, be the one, be the first one to throw this stone. Now, listen up. The older you are, the more sins you have. So the text says that from the oldest to the youngest, people started to walk away. You know what that looked like? Like, ah. <laughs> so modern people will hear that and they would say, I love that Jesus. That's an amazing Jesus. It's a Jesus that doesn't condemn anybody. It's a Jesus that gives permission. It's a Jesus that knows that nobody got to get to tell you what is right and wrong. <laughs> but Jesus turns around and he looks at the lady. And he says to her, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. My translation, girl, stop sleeping around. Save sex for marriage. That's what he means. You know what happens with modern people when they hear that part? How dare you, Jesus? How dare you tell me who I get to sleep with and who I don't? Can you see what happens when you embrace expressive individualism? You throw out all morality out the door, and you are completely inconsistent. And Jesus says, that's why your definition of morality is bound to what God says. And you feel guilt because your conscience is going against what God says. And deep down inside, we all know that we deserve the judgment of God. Now, once again, going back to the argument, people would say, well, how come, how come the God of love that the Bible talks about is the same God of judgment. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, I gave another argument and I said that part of the reason why we have to embrace the doctrine of judgment is because you cannot embrace the concept of judgment if you really believe that God is love. Because if God is love, he cannot see violence, injustice, oppression, and deception and say, that's okay. You know the only people that would say, I don't agree with that doctrine? Uh, the only people that would say, yeah, I love that God. The God that doesn't condemn anybody? The oppressor. But if you were the one that were oppressed, you wouldn't like that concept. Because deep down inside, we all will cry out for justice. This is what Jesus talks about, Judgment. And this is why Jesus talks about guilt. So the question, let me ask it again, is what does that have to do with us? Because I believe that even though you might be a good Christian, you're still struggling with guilt. Because none of us, including the preacher, have lived a life in which we are fully obedient to what we have seen and heard. 
Every single one of us know deep down inside that we deserve the judgment of God. Chris Costaldo, which is a friend of mine and a pastor and author and friend, he's in Naperville area. He wrote a piece talking about this. And in a very poetic way, this is what he says. The human soul thirsts for deliverance. Minds are hunted and returning to past faults, remembering some dishonorable conduct or failure. We live in the shadow of such a guilt, and none of us, even the most uh, circumspect, can avoid it. There is a corner uh, of every house, including the most immaculate, that is in disarray, stained with the dirt of this world. Whenever you visit that corner in your heart, where injurious patterns of guilt reside, the voice of condemnation clears its throat and screams, you are guilty, everything must be paid for. I want to argue that this is part of the reason why we try so hard. Because we still think that we can fix our problem with guilt with good deeds. Actually, I want to argue that this is part of the reason why we are exhausted of trying to be good. Like if you balance these things out, man, if I'm more good, then guilt will go away. And you try and you try and you try, and guilt is still there. Once again, because deep down inside, it doesn't matter how much you try, the weight of guilt is still there. Now, Jesus says the way to deal with that is just repent. Just believe and repent. But I just made the argument that even repenting is hard. That really, really, genuinely repenting is hard. So the question I'm asking is, why is this so hard? Point number two, the root of guilt. In verse 21, he talks about these two cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida, and he compares that city to Tyre and Sidon. But then in verse 23, he's going to compare Capernaum to a city that is well known by Christians, Sodom, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at what it says in verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Notice that Jesus speaks to this city in a very similar way that he did it to the other cities. But now he says to this city, if the miracles that I perform in your midst, I would have performed in Sodom, they would have repented. So, what is it that all these three cities have in common? Why is it that these people have such a hard time repenting, like believing and repenting? Notice that the text doesn't call you to believe, repent, and then go to church. Believe and repent and give money. Believe and repent and serve. Believe and repent and do whatever. The only call for Christians is to believe and repent. Why is it that this is so hard? Well, when you look at the cities and you look at the struggle, I think that the answer is super clear. Pride. 
See, part of the reason why Jesus is comparing these modern cities, if you will, to these ancient cities is because they all share the same thing, pride. See, pride by definition is us feeling superior to others. Pride is thinking that we know best. Pride is putting ourselves in the center of everything. Pride makes much of us and little of God and little of people. Pride is the ultimate delusion. Pride is blindness to whom we really are and what we really need. Now, how do I know that this was what these cities struggled with and the Asian cities struggled with? Because if you read Isaiah chapter 23, where it talks about Tyre and Sidon, it tells you that their problem was pride. But this is even more clear with Sodom. Now, if you know anything about that story, people know that Sodom's main problem was their sexual immorality. But did you know that there's a sin behind the sin? So if you think that the worst sin in the world is is sexual immorality, you don't understand sin just yet. You know why is that Sodom struggle with sexual immorality? Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 56 says that the reason why they struggle with sexual immorality is because of their pride. Pride is the sin behind the sin. Pride is the reason why we struggle with guilt. Pride is the reason why we are weary and burdened. Pride is the reason why we ignore what we have seen and heard. Pride is the one that says to God, I don't need you, I know best. Pride is the one that makes us believe that we can be on our own and we are our God. Pride is the spirit of, spirit of individualism. Pride is what makes you believe, it makes it hard for you to believe and repent. Pride. Listen up, church. Either you kill your pride or your pride is going to kill you. Let me make it even more clear to you. Because this is a cheerful sermon. (laughs) I want to invite you to see that hell is a place full of pride. Did you notice the word Hades there? The word Hades is just another name for hell. And it literally means grave. It could be translated as the underworld or the world of the dead, spiritually dead. You want to know what hell looks like? So get rid of whatever image you have in your mind. Get, get rid for a second. Get rid of any idea of you imagining someone going, ah. Get ready, because that's the pictures I've seen as a little kid. That's the, that's the thing that comes to mind. Get rid of anything that says someone asking God for eternity to help them out. Get rid of all that. And listen how Isaiah chapter 14 describes Hades. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will rise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mountain of the assembly. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Do you know what hell looks like? It's a place in which the proud continue in their pride for eternity. 
you might want to take the time to read Luke chapter 16, in which you have the image of a man that in hell, it's a parable, so it's not a, it's not a real story, it's a parable it's a story, in which a man that is in the fire of his guilt, calling out to Abraham so he could bring water to him. You know what's interesting about that passage? The man is not even calling out for help to get out of hell. He's being consumed with himself for eternity. This is the reason why C.S. Lewis says that there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done. Or those who God says to them, your will be done. This is the same reason why C.S. Lewis in a different place says that hell is the place where people finally get what they always wanted. A life without God. Pride is the sin behind all of our sins. And when you think about that, if you struggle, why is it that God allows people to go there? You got to have, you got to ask two questions. Number one, that's what people want without him. And number two, why is it that he's holding you back? Listen, for me, I hate that doctrine. I hate the idea that there's people that will burn there for eternity. But at the same time, it doesn't make any sense to me. Why would he save me? Why does he save you? Why does he allow you to see if you and I have the same pride? If you and I struggle with the same pride, our guilt is an evidence that that is true. That we too reject what we have seen and heard. So how do we change, church? If guilt is the product of our pride, and if we don't deal with our pride, we won't be able to deal with our guilt, and therefore we will receive judgment. How do we deal with our, how do we deal with our pride? See, and someone may say, if you're part of this modern world, you would say, I'm going to become humble. From this point on, I'm going to be humble. You know what's the problem with that? That the moment you say that, you are no longer humble. Because you are trusting way too much in your ability. That's what got you in trouble in the first place. So yes, humility needs to be there. But humility is not something you can work. There's not step one, two, and three, how to become humble. Humility is the byproduct of something else. Humility is the result of something else. So this is point number three, the freedom from guilt. I think that Jesus is going to make it super clear that the only way we deal with guilt, that the only way we deal with pride, that the only way we're going to deal with uh, us, the reality of, uh, of, of judgment 
is when we start where he starts with the word repentance, right? He says it in verse 20 to the first group of people, and then he says it in verse 21 to the other group, to, to Chorus, in a, uh, to Capernaum at the end, right? Repent. So when he's calling people to repent, it's because that's the solution. Um, the problem with repentance, though, is that if you pursue it, you have to pursue it with the right motivation. That's the problem. So once again, and I said this before, if you are repentant because you got caught, that's not repentance. You got caught. You're dumb. Repentance cannot be because you just want to avoid hell. Because if you repent so you don't go to hell, then you're not repenting for real. You're using God for something. Repenting cannot just be because you feel bad. It has to be something more. So listen up, church. Repentance and humility is the overflow or the byproduct of us embracing three things. The people that really repent and grow in humility are the people that understand these three things. Number one, that the only reason why you are here today is because of the grace of God. That the only reason why you are here today or you listen to this message wherever you are is because of the grace of God. He chose to reveal himself to you. You did not look for him. You were not in tune with him. You were blind in your pride and God chose to reveal himself to you. Where do I get that? Look at what it says in verse 25. At that time, Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden those things, these things, from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Notice, it wasn't that people are looking for God. It's that God is looking for people. It's not that we are all in sitting in our blindness and our guilt and say, oh, I need God. No, no, no. He needs to make the first move. It was God's idea, God's initiative. And if you don't think that that is clear, read verse 27. This is Jesus saying, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You know why that verse is so hard for many of us? Because it dethrones you from your heart. It strips from you any idea that the only reason why you're a Christian is because you came to Jesus. He humbles the light, the lights out of you. He tells you that you were so dead in your sins and your trespasses that Jesus had to choose you first. He had to illuminate your mind in order for you to see. That the Holy Spirit had to come and open up your eyes so you could see. That if it wasn't for Jesus, that if it wasn't for the Father, that if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, you and I will be still, we will be still bound to our own sin, 
blind for eternity. So the question is, why me? Why Jesus would come for someone like me? Why would Jesus come for someone like you? And if you think that you deserve it, you're not a Christian just yet. You might like Christianity, but you're not a believer. Because no believer could ever leave the grace of God behind. Now look at the beautiful thing that Jesus does. He chooses, he opens the mind, and then he says in verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Verse 29, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And here we have the second principle that leads you to repentance. is when you see the attitude of Jesus toward you. You see that word gentle there can be translated as gentle and meek and humble. Dane Ortland wrote a book on this that we gave it to a bunch of our leaders. This is what he says. The attitude of Jesus toward these guilty, proudful people is not harsh, it's not reactionary. It's not easy, easily exasperated. Jesus is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is to, not to point fingers, but to welcome people with open arms. See, that doesn't make sense to me either, you know? Why would God Almighty, why God that is righteous and pure, instead of bringing judgment upon ourselves, upon us, receives us with open arms. That doesn't make any sense to me. But it's true. Actually, the word lowly means that he's accessible, meaning that he's approachable, meaning that you don't have to jump hoops to come to him, meaning that you just come to him. That's what Jesus says to the guilty ones. That's what Jesus says to the one that know that deserve judgment. This is what Jesus says to people like you and me. That's why we repent. And the third reason why we repent is because of the concept of judgment. See, I told you before, and that's why you got to pay attention all throughout the sermon. I told you before that it's impossible for us to believe that God is love if we don't embrace that God is a God of judgment. Therefore, Jesus couldn't just come to you and say, you know what, yes, you are guilty. Yeah, you deserve judgment, but it's okay. Walk away. He can do that. Because if he does that, he will be violating his own law, his own righteousness, his own holiness. He can do that. So we still got the issue with judgment then. How is God going to fix this problem of judgment and love? And in his wisdom and beauty and mercy and grace, he finds exactly the way to do it. He grabs a sinner like you and he grabs a sinner like me. And he moves us to the side. And he says, I'm not going to give you judgment I'm going to give you mercy and grace. But instead, 
he puts Jesus in. And says, and says to the guiltless one, you take the consequence of his guilt and her guilt. And then at the cross, you see this pure, perfect, amazing, full of mercy and full of grace, God. Dying for the consequences of your sin and my sin. Taking the judgment that you and I deserve. Doing the great exchange, you know. Him putting himself in our place and him giving us what he deserved. Isn't that the ultimate expression of grace? Doesn't that tell you that even if you are blind to your sin, he still wants you to come to him? This is why we celebrate communion, you know? Because we are like that woman that was caught in adultery. We know that we have been unfaithful. We know that we have been unfaithful to him. We know that we have given our hearts to other things and other people. We know that we have given our bodies to other things and other people. We know deep down inside where we're supposed to be. And yet Jesus comes and says, they can condemn you. I won't condemn you. Go and sin no more. But do you know why Jesus could say that to her? Because he was going to go to the cross in her place. You are that woman. I am that woman. And that's why we participate in communion. So we could see and taste and remember how costly hell was. How much he was willing to go for you and do for you. So I'm going to ask you to grab your cup. On one side you will find the bread. Before participating in this, I would like us to take just a few minutes like the Bible calls us to, to examine our hearts. If you are a believer, this is for you. If you are not a believer just yet, you should not participate because God will hold you accountable according to what you already know. Take this as an opportunity for you to come to him. If you're weary and burdened, come to him. So if there's anything that you need to repent of, this is the time to do it. Let's spend a few seconds there. Jesus says to all of us who are guilty and full of pride, come to me. Eat with me. 
Come to me and eat with me if you're weary and burdened. Because of what I did, you will find rest. Come to me who is gentle and accessible and loving and compassionate. Come to me and I'll give rest to your souls. Let's remove the, the, the cover of the side where you find the bread. And the Lord Jesus said on the night when he was betrayed, he says that he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may participate. Now remove the second cover. And after supper, Jesus took the cup and said, This is the cup in the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You may participate. Lord, as we participate in communion. And as these elements enter into our system, we want to remember, Lord, that the only reason why we are here today and we came to the saving knowledge of Jesus is because you revealed yourself to us. You chose to reveal yourself to us. It was all grace from the beginning to the end. We thank you, Lord, because your attitude toward us is not for condemnation, but to bring us in, to love us, to care for us, to transform us with your patient love. Lord, and as these elements enter into our body, we may be able to see and understand and believe that that act of love and mercy was extremely costly. Nothing less but the judgment of God upon the innocent one so the guilty one could be forgiven. Because of that, Lord, we repent and we believe. Help us believe more and help us believe a life of repentance. And we pray for all this in the name of Jesus. And we all say, Amen.